The demonstration in Jerusalem on June 14th got the nickname the Bibistilia Day, when thousands of people demonstrated together to protest against the policies or lack of policies the Israeli government is taking these days. The demonstrators come from different backgrounds and different groups. One group is called the Shulmans and represent the self-employed and the independent workers. Another group is named Crime Minister is until recently was focused on demonstrating against the Attorney General of Israel, Avichai Mendelblit, who some of them were saying was helping the Prime Minister Netanyahu to get away from his corruption cases. And another group is called the Black Flags and focuses on demonstrating against anti-democratic measures the government is taking and defending the Supreme Court from the attacks by the Prime Minister's supporters. But it seems that this demonstration was different. The demonstration was the biggest, loudest, and most diverse. Some politicians and reporters tried to color it as a leftist and anarchy supporters demonstration with strong vandalism. So I brought a protester to provide her input on what happened there and what is happening in overall with the Israeli democracy. So my first guest is Nitzan Weisberg, who is a social activist and design thinking specialist. She is best known for her activism in the freedom of and from religion, particularly in Israeli education system. She lives with her husband and four kids in Hoda Sharon, And I really want to thank you for joining me today, especially when uh, we are recording at afternoon in New York and it's late at night in Israel. And thank you, Nitzan, for staying awake, especially for me. So tell me a little bit about what is your place in those demonstrations and what's going on in Israel at the moment. Okay, so first of all, thank you, Kobe, for having me on your podcast. What's going on in Israel? Well, there is a climate of extreme civil unrest I would say, possibly this is something that we're feeling all over the world, but it feels in many ways that the situation in Israel, well, I mean, I think we're all going through a very extreme and difficult and unsettling time. In Israel, I think what characterizes it is across the board, a growing lack of faith and trust in government. And so this is an extremely difficult time to have something like a pandemic as well as a severe economic crisis. Every fifth Israeli is unemployed right now. We're leading in unemployment in the OECD and our COVID-19 stats are rising as well. So it's great instability, objective instability, but also great political instability. And basically nobody believes anything that comes out of the prime minister's mouth. And it boils down to people having arguments, not medical arguments about whether we need to wear masks or don't need to wear masks, but political arguments about things which I think could have been spared the Israeli citizens to some extent with greater faith in government. Well, but we do see different groups that are in a way, protesting for different issues. You have the Shulmans on one hand, those are the self-employed and the small businesses owners. On the other hand, you have, a, I would call them the crime minister group who's been demonstrating for years now, actually. And until recently, they would go and demonstrate in Petah Tikva uh, by the Attorney General of Israel, Avichai Mendelblitz House, in order to finish up with the investigations with the cases of the Prime Minister Netanyahu is uh, accused that. 
And now you have the new protest. Actually, it's a group called the Black Flags, the Galim Ashkurim. They are the ones fighting or actually demonstrating against what you would call narrowing down the democracy in Israel and the steps that are being taken by the government and the Knesset, actually, in order to narrow the Supreme Court, the Knesset itself, and to put the surveillance around citizens now in Israel. Am I correct with that? Yeah, so there are different groups. There's possibly maybe some overlap, but you're right. The crime minister group has been basically demonstrating consecutively for over three years. And that has been very focused on corruption. So the prime minister's corruption charges and exposing those and raising awareness to those and promoting, I guess, a just process around that. The Black Flags, it's an organization, it's, it's all grassroots, but it's much newer. It really began, I guess, in March when people saw great instability in government. We saw a situation, we just had elections, we had a temporary government and COVID-19, and we were seeing that the first actions that was taking was closing down the courts. So a sense that democracy is literally being shut down instigated that organization led by four siblings. And they basically just called people to drive up to the Knesset, to the parliament with black flags. And theoretically, we couldn't even leave the cars at the time, I think. And they managed to get lots and lots of people. And it began to be sort of a daily thing and culminated in a big growing demonstration. So basically, you sort of have to understand that behind this, there's a lot of social networks that are connecting people. These are not very institutional organizations. The crime minister, I think, are already uh, some sort of entity, but the others are not really an entity. They're, they're more like Facebook groups or WhatsApp groups. WhatsApp. Yeah, so that's a big organizing tool right now. And so the Shulman group really began as a Facebook group maybe a year ago or so because they were always focused on conditions for independent, which is a really grossly neglected. And it's very difficult to be a small business in Israel. So for many reasons... Preliminary tax, for example, we lead in the OECD by far in the number of payments, for example, that small businesses have tax payments that have to pay. So this sort of comes together when, again, one of the first things that the prime minister does after forming a coalition is ensure that his own 11-year-old 1 million shekel debt is paid for by the government. taxed it. By while, the taxpayers, technically. Well, yes, by, by <laughs> taxpayers. Again, while basically a third of the population now has no income and is still having to pay their taxes if you're a small business right. in itself. Yeah, so, and it, it's also important to say that unlike in the US that you pay your taxes at the end of the year or quarterly, right. in Israel, every time that somebody is issuing a receipt or an invoice, he needs to pay the taxes. No matter what, if he got the payment or not, and there is also the payment method in Israel, you call it Shotef Shloshim, Shotef Shishim, and Shotef Tishim, which means that the payee can pay you after a month plus or two months plus or like a longer period of time after you actually did the job and the issue, the invoice. Yes. So really, you have a whole country, but certainly a small business sector that's living with like zero wiggle room. 
And the second that COVID-19 hit and severe restrictions on mobility, on, on doing business began, which have hit everybody. But in Israel, we didn't get anything done about the taxes. So very little or very small relatively severance package or support. So these things came together and I think they come together in a sense that the corruption, the greed, and really the decadent disconnection between the actions of the government and predominantly the prime minister are sort of a slap in the face. There's a, there's a kind of sense that this is no longer just a principle or a moral principle, which is kind of what the prime minister gang were leading. They were leading a moral principle that didn't hit most people very intimately. With the black flags more, I think people felt that, again, less of a moral issue, slightly more pragmatic, but still not in your pocket. And the Shulman group are really about in your pocket. But what happened last night was that another group, which hadn't been very present in demonstrations up until now, which is really young people, like teens and people in their you know, early 20s, okay. joined in. I think mostly being very repulsed <laughs> and astonished by police violence, which we've been seeing on the rise well, I guess since Amir Khanna took his position as Minister of Interior Defense, it seems like he's very much a hardliner, very much about educating the public and disciplining the public. We're not disciplined enough, apparently. We do have a prime minister who's facing severe corruption charges and not paying his taxes 11 years, but we're the undisciplined ones. And so I think that has hit very hard and kind of at a gut level for the young people who have joined in now. So you would say that the main trigger for people coming yesterday on June 14th was actually the police violence in the last demonstrations? The police officers came with the municipality of Jerusalem, also sent the police to the protesters who were sitting outside of Balfour 10, the resident right. of the prime minister. But you also had the police violence before. I think that almost none of the groups in the Israeli society is being immune to this police aggressive and non-tolerant approach. I agree. And, you know, we have the occupation, which is a whole different arena. And Israelis have become, I would say, a little bit too accustomed to that type of violence. I'm not sure there's sort of one reason. I think for different people, there are different reasons. But there have been sort of different kind of narratives all leading to this point. So one narrative has been increased police violence. Another narrative, things that have been building up kind of grassroots sentiments, I would say, is the sense that, you know, that there's a vigil for a few weeks now outside the prime minister's residence. And this is basically a very small group of elderly people, the, the leader of which is Amir Eskel, which is... Um, he's an ex-pilot and uh, a lot of his friends are actually ex-pilots. That's right. That's right. And a Holocaust researcher. And so they've been sitting there and it's not a very glamorous sort of protest, right? It doesn't photograph very well, you know, 70-year-olds sitting on plastic chairs 
Yeah. So on the sidewalk, it's not that photo op type of demonstration, but they have determination, which is pretty incredible. And Emil has been doing this for a few years already. Really just a single person standing there saying a corrupt prime minister cannot make decisions about life and death, about anything. So he's kind of carried that moral and practical theme. And the police have, for two consecutive days, they've been basically raiding the sit-in, the vigil area. So people sleep there in sleeping bags and they've come, they've confiscated their stuff. Uh, one of the municipal inspectors pulled out a knife and um, slashed somebody's face. So these types of things, I think, are creating a sense that we're not going to have freedom, that we're not going to have rights. And that sense of the walls closing in, I think, is definitely something that everybody feels. The sense of incredible unfairness, inequality, double standards, a very strong disconnect, a sense of disgust with government, distrust, this kind of ongoing escalating feeling, I think, is what brought lots and lots of people last night to Balfour Street. And if I go back to yesterday, to the demonstration itself, I mean, it got a lot of critics, especially, of course, from the right wing, which makes sense. The Likud party said that it was a bunch of anarchists and leftists, especially when it was named, from what I heard, the Bibistilia by some people. And on the other hand, some of the media actually showed photos that are not that nice, that shows violence, that shows uh, damage to property. So I want to hear from you, what did you see on the grounds? Because I know from a lot of people on Facebook, for example, who said that they were there, that there was no such thing. So I want to hear it from somebody who was there. Yeah, it's pretty incredible, you know. I mean, Netanyahu has dominated the media. It's something that's incredibly important to him. And so it isn't surprising that every single occurrence that goes against him, and especially these massive protests, these very determined protests, scare him. You know, this is real as opposed to everything that he spins through his web of his network media, of, right? Yeah. But this is particularly outrageous because people literally spreading fake news, there was no violence. There was no violence. This was an incredibly peace-loving crowd of artists and young people And many of the left were there. It wasn't all left, but there were a lot of left who believe in nonviolence and peace. And it was a big demonstration, but people were walking around with kids and, you know, it felt safe. It felt good. There was no violence. I think the most dramatic thing that I saw, well, two things, I guess. I saw some eggs being thrown. And at some point, very late into the process, somebody set a garbage bin on fire. So these two events or these two things, but really I think it was a very intense carnival-like, it wasn't a polite demonstration. Nobody was there just being polite and weak. It was determined and it was angry and people are very, very angry. And I think that was spun into anarchists and violence and, you know, Really, what I saw was a tremendously powerful passion for democracy, passion for justice, 
care about society and the culture that we live in. And really, we have to split the evening into two. So there was the demonstration part, which was, I guess, two to three hours. And then, which was wonderful and incredible, there was one much talked about event, violent event, which was Avishai Benchim, who's a reporter, was trying to speak into his microphone and a guy came up to him and knocked the microphone out of his hand. So this was talked about and spoken. And of course, you know, we don't knock microphones out of uh, reporters' hands. That's not acceptable. But it ended up being a Netanyahu supporter who'd stolen into the crowd and was basically trying to stir trouble. And it was pretty incredible how the media just swallowed that up. They took that scene and they reported it as the demonstrators being violent without trying to figure out who this guy was where there were other testimonials of this guy being rough with other people in the demonstration, like zero you know, journalistic integrity, basically trying to figure out what happened apart from the clip on Twitter or whatever. Anyway, it was an incredible, very, very intense experience, the demonstration, when it, at some point demonstrators were pushing against the fence leading to or barring from the Prime Minister's residence. But between you and me, had 10,000 people wanted to smash that fence down, it would have been down. There weren't enough policemen there to keep that up. We didn't need 10,000 people. I was there. I was away from the fence. What happened at some point, which began to be way more surreal, I guess, was that after that, the young people began to walk the other way and they started to just walk the streets of Jerusalem at night. And so we began to walk the streets and that's when the police, I guess, lost control of the situation. They hadn't anticipated that, even though that's exactly what had happened a few days earlier in Tel Aviv. And that was like a spontaneous? It was spontaneous. So it wasn't a part of the protest, it was a byproduct, you can say. So the protest was over. It had been going on from 7.30 p.m. to 10.30 p.m. or so. And it seemed to be breaking up, but then some of the young people began kind of marching through the streets of Jerusalem. And I sort of followed them, so I was part of that. And then I'm just kind of walking down streets in Jerusalem when I see suddenly like hundreds of people running in my direction. And then I see that they've got the police car basically shooting water at people. Oh, with the water hoses. Yeah, but it's not a hose. This is a truck. Yeah, it's like the cannons, the water cannons, I would say. The water cannon. What began was, to me, it seemed like the Hunger Games. You know, we were sort of being hunted down in the streets of Jerusalem by the police with no apparent purpose, right? I mean, what were they trying to achieve except sort of harassing people who were basically sort of peacefully marching? I mean, there was nothing very dramatic about what was going on except, you know, lots of people walking. And so that continued and it continued. And the interesting thing was that the crowd on the street seemed very supportive of the protesters, which is surprising because, you know, in Tel Aviv, it's not surprising to get anti-Netanyahu sentiments from people just passing by who didn't come to the demonstration. But Jerusalem is, is Netanyahu turf. So it was very, very interesting to see how much support there was actually on the street from people who were just observing what was going on. 
And I guess especially because whatever our opinions or backgrounds, whether ultra-Orthodox or Arab or whatever, when you have a water cannon being shot at you, you run away from it together. (laughs) So that's the sentiment that ended up defining that evening. It was sort of the decadent regime against the people. That's what it was. Thank you very much for sharing. But I do want to get something, I wouldn't say optimistic, but, you know, something also good. So first thing I want to ask you, what do you think will happen next? We already know that the government, uh, they made another publication that they're going to give an economic support to the people and they're going to help small businesses. We don't know yet what will happen and what will not happen, but there are declarations. But I want to ask you, what's going to happen with the protest? I mean, what's going to happen next? Well, I I don't know what's going to happen next, but I feel that the more excessive violence, we didn't speak about everything that happened that night, but following that, there were many arrests. Everybody got released because these were false arrests. People got detained and coerced, I guess, not to continue protesting. Um, It happened two weeks ago also on Friday night where they came and they arrested Amir Askel, that you reminded his name. Yeah, so they did this again. So these are basically political detainees. They're not detaining them for very long yet, but I guess this is getting us used to it, which is troubling. But people are being troubled by it. So I think we're going to see more demonstrations. I think we're going to see more people joining them. And this is the thing we need to do right now. So Netanyahu has created a situation in government where parliament has less and less significance and meaning. He's trying very hard to wear down the judicial system. And so we've got the judicial system kind of safeguarding some of our rights, and we have to literally guard the rest of them with our body, physically, by protesting and being out there. And do you think that, I mean, Netanyahu is a really skilled politician. We can give him that, that he is the most skilled politician in Israel, maneuvering everybody else to his needs and uh, ambitions. And in 2011, there was the big uh, social protest, Ha'am Doresh Tzedek Hevrati, the people demand social justice. And he was able to put the fires down. Do you think that we are facing the same scenario or maybe different because now there is a true economic crisis, which is global, but in Israel, it also gets hard, some of the people. I think it's very different. You know why? Because now there's a name. This is a political protest. The other protest was like, you know, we're saying political things, but we're not really political and we don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. And... This is why it's very significant that this is happening outside the Prime Minister's residence. It's personal. You made our lives so difficult. You've put so many people at risk while all of these decisions being made out of, at the very least, conflict of interest. So, yes, it's personal now and we want him out. And so that demand is very concrete. And that is a demand that you can say that is shared by a lot of right-wingers? Because in my perspective, in a way, if this uh, protest will be one-sided in a way, then it's a, you know, it's a lost cause. I mean, Netanyahu does have a strong coalition. He formed a strong and really big uh, government, so he doesn't have too many people uh, out of the job. He did make sure that some people will be hired. In a way, it's not a matter of left and right, but the fact is that you don't have too many right-wingers 
supporting the protest. So do you think it's going to shift from the right wing as well because of the corruption and, you know, the morals well, and ethics? Or I think this is what we're seeing. I think that it's difficult, perhaps, for people on the right, but increasingly there are more and more of them, to say, I don't want Netanyahu and I don't care who it's going to be. And this is a problem that the left has as well. It's not like we have an alternative. But I think right now many people are okay with a robot running the country rather than a person who has a conflict of interest. I think it was uh, M.K. Ahmad Tibi from the joint list who said last weekend on Haaretz that he would rather have a khlil, I forgot how it's called in English, a scarecrow serving as the prime minister. So as long as it can be a scarecrow, it can also be guns. Um, but uh, it was a bit funny, but was also a bit bitter to say that the alternatives doesn't look that much better. I think it's true. We do have a crisis of leadership. In part, it has been created by Netanyahu so that he will perceptually be the only person who can lead. But we have great leaders. We have great leaders in industry. We have great leaders all over the place. You know, we've got amazing people in this country. And many of them are worthy people who could make decisions that would be good for all of Israeli society. You know, I think this is part of our job now to raise that awareness, make that option clear. You know, people get used to something, like you get used to, yeah. I don't know, like a pain or a broken hand, or you get used to it and then it feels weird, you know, like if you've ever broken It feels natural hand. to you. Yeah, you get the cast off, it suddenly feels weird. Yeah. We have so many worthy leaders and so many worthy decision makers It's absurd to think that we don't have an alternative. There is always an alternative. I agree with you. I think that one of the biggest challenges is to show your leadership in one area when you are an expert in another area. Israel is full of generals who were amazing as uh, warriors and as uh, commanders. But when they come to politics, they all join, I would say, the general's graveyard. <laughs> <laughs> because they lack the political sense. So I think it's a combination of leadership and exactly. political skills. And in that term, I mean, it's a challenge to find one. Well, um, I would say for Netanyahu, you know, he has great political skills. But other than that, he's a terrible decision maker, you know, not taking into consideration his conflict of interest, which is guiding yeah. his decisions right now. He's never been a very good decision maker. He actually postpones decisions, which is a problem in that position. So I think if I have to prefer to choose between an unskilled politician but a skilled decision maker, I think I'll go for the person who will take care of nine million people as opposed to smooth-talking a coalition. Well, Nitan, it was really interesting to speak to you. You gave us a beautiful insight about what's going on. It worries at time, but I do want to keep our listeners optimistic. And I really believe, you know, that the Israeli democracy, those struggles of people in democracies is happening all around the world now. We are facing a really big leadership crisis. It's not just the COVID-19 actually exposed a lot right. of the problems and malfunctions that we have in modern societies. So I really hope that we'll find ourselves talking again in better days. 
I want to thank you for your time. It's you. late at night in Israel now. It is. And it's been a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you very much. Thank you, Nitsan. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and wanted to thank you for joining me. If you like my podcast, feel free to rank it and share it with others. I also invite you to subscribe to my podcast so you will get updates when a new episode is on the air. And last but not least, I invite you to check my website, Balagan, www.balagan.ltd, for more content about Israel's history and politics. Bye for now, and have a great day.